The sound of war is often lost in histories, but the noise of the Somme battlefield was an unholy terror. The weird shriek of shells was described by soldiers who tried to make sense of the disharmony as akin to a drumbeat of smashing sounds or to the passage of invisible trains above them. The dropping of mortar bombs created a deep crunch followed by a bang, while bullets passing close were likened to bees or hornets seeking their prey. The sound of the wounded men had its own quality. There were those who screamed in uncontrollable agony, out of their mind with pain, although they seemed to be in the minority. More often, men only groaned and whimpered, clamping down their jaws to stifle their tortured sounds. It was easier to sit or lie still when movement brought white-hot hurt, and many prayed that relief was coming from the hands of a stretcher bearer. That description, read by Canadian historian Tim Cook, comes from his newest book, Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, Medical Care and the Struggle for Survival in the Great War. Stretcher bearers were often the first point of contact for soldiers needing care from the Canadian Army Medical Corps. But the Medical Corps as a whole kept the Canadian Expeditionary Force afloat for four years of the most traumatic, bloody fighting generations had ever seen. I've always felt it important that we hear the voices of the eyewitnesses to history. Of course, there's no one left from the Great War, but the letters and the diaries and the memoirs provide those evocative, powerful eyewitness accounts of combat and battle and stress and strain for the soldiers. And then the, uh, the doctors and nurses, uh, their impact in caring for the soldiers and preserving um, uh, the, the health of the army and engaging in the care uh, of those wounded men when they came back through the field ambulances and the casually clearing stations uh, and ultimately to the hospitals. It's a story of care, it's a story of devastation. Uh, and one of the things I, I try to make very clear in the book is that the medical services of which about half of all Canadian doctors served and a third of Canadian nurses that the medical services were part of the entire fighting formation, that they are supporting the combat arms. And I think that's an important story to uh, emphasize more than 100 years later. I'm Louisa Simmons, and this is Juno Beach and Beyond. More about the Canadian Army Medical Corps with historian Tim Cook after the music. Canada's war effort is a voluntary effort. bad thing was we knew before anyone else when a ship went down. I went home every day and had to lie about my boring job as a typing clerk and always change the subject. If the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this Stretcher bearer Private Michael James O'Rourke had been blown off his feet by shell explosions more times than his fellow soldiers could count. Yet each time he hit the ground, ears ringing and eyes welling up from the impact, he would struggle to his feet and run directly back into the fray. 
In his Victoria Cross citation for bravery during the assault on Hill 70 in 1917, it's noted that James spent a grueling 72 hours working unceasingly to bring the wounded into safety, dressing their wounds, and getting them food and water. He did so with complete disregard for his safety, running headfirst into perilous conditions where soldiers lay wheezing and crying for help. The role of the stretcher bearer was arguably the most dangerous in the Canadian Army Medical Corps, but they were not the only ones risking their lives to save fellow soldiers. Very early in the war, at the Second Battle of Ypres in April 1915, when the Germans unleashed chlorine gas, the medical officers were involved often right at the front with the, the fighting all around them. Um, but a little bit later, it was determined that the medical officers were, were too important. They shouldn't be running across no man's land. It was too dangerous with the explosions of high explosives, of shrapnel, of sweeping machine gun fire. And the stretcher bearers really took on that role of what we would think of medics under fire. Um, and so during the big battles, uh, as the infantry move forward in their attacks, um, often following the creeping barrage of artillery at um, the Somme or Vimy or Passchendaele, the stretcher bearers were there with the infantry. They weren't armed, um, but they, uh, their responsibility was to care for the fallen. And they were running over the shell cratered battlefield exposing themselves to shot and shell, um, often passing through uh, poison gas and wearing respirators, looking for the wounded soldiers who were uh, often in the craters and administering care. And then most often try to get that soldier to walk to the rear. For the grievously wounded ones, they often had to wait for hours and hours for a stretcher bear to find a number of comrades, sometimes prisoners of war, to carry them back. And I recount that in the book, those desperate hours and, and just these incredible gut-wrenching stories of wounded soldiers with uh, their entrails falling out or having an arm ripped off or a bullet wound through the head, somehow finding the stamina, the courage, the uh, resilience to stumble their way back past the medical officer, often to the field ambulance, which was the first real line of care for those wounded soldiers. And of course, you speak as well about this decision that sometimes stretcher bearers have to make, where they come across a soldier who's so grievously wounded that they have to decide whether they're going to attempt to save him or to provide aid or leave him and go to somebody who is more likely to actually survive. And that must have been a decision that weighed so heavily on their minds. It is most powerful and evocative and agonizing with that decision of triage. And of course, we know that word today, and we're aware that uh, hospitals often engage in triage of deciding who to treat first and who can be um, put aside for a little bit later. Uh, but we're talking Battle of the Somme here, where 24,000 casualties over a two-month period, where one field ambulance at the Battle of Second Ypres had 5,200 patients pass through it. So they're always being overwhelmed, the doctors and the nurses. And as you said, the stretcher bearers at the front with so many wounded soldiers, who could be treated? Well, many of them, but in the book, I recount some agonizing stories of terribly wounded soldiers who the stretcher bearers simply looked at and, and decided that they could not save them. 
not out of callousness, of course, but because to spend the 10 or 15 minutes caring for that one soldier meant you couldn't care for another. Um, and those emotional decisions, um, they, were they were prominent throughout the letters and the diaries of the doctors and the nurses and the stretcher bearers. And I kept coming across them. Um, and I wanted to draw that out because this is a book that I wrote during the early days of COVID, the pandemic. I started in April of 2020. That was a time when we were locked down, when we were all very fearful, when we were afraid that our hospitals would be overwhelmed as we did see in some places in the United States and other countries. Um, and all histories reflect the time I think, where historians write. It doesn't mean that the evidence changes, but I was looking at these stories with new eyes, and that triage story was one of many in the book that resonated forward, including others being the vaccination of soldiers or lessons learned um, or the evolution of surgical care during the course of the war. Well, and that really speaks to the kind of wide-ranging skills that a medical officer had to have, thinking not just about wounds, but that they're also fighting the enemy that is disease. So what kind of range of work were medical officers and medical personnel actually doing overseas? Disease is the great reaper of armies, destroyer of armies throughout human history. Uh, up to the 20th century, almost every war in human history, and certainly every extended war, saw disease kill more soldiers than bullets or shells or earlier sword and spear. Um, that's quite astonishing when we think about it. And um, if we even reflect on the American Civil War with a massive new weaponry, 2000 land battles, disease killed more soldiers than weapons. The last major war the British and Canadians fought in South Africa, disease killed twice as many soldiers as bore bullets. So this was a, a massive concern for the Canadian Army Medical Corps and the doctors who were a part of it. They were aware of their own history. They were aware of the challenges of disease. And one of the fascinating stories in the book was the forced vaccination of soldiers at the start of the war when more than 30,000 came together uh, at Valcarche near Quebec City. And it was a great, great worry that that many soldiers would lead to a vector of disease. And so there were concerns over where human and animal feces would be buried or burned, how to keep the water supply clean, fear that a typhus might break out. Um, and the vaccination is a really fascinating story. Uh, they demanded the doctors that every soldier be vaccinated. And it's uh, quite clear that those vaccinations saved lives. And they soldiers continued to be vaccinated throughout the war. And one of the interesting chapters I look at is the Battle of Vimy Ridge and the act of force protection. That's a term we use today to, you know, the medical services to keep the army from dissolving into a, uh, an army, a diseased mob, I suppose. Really the key role of the medical services in, in protecting the health of the army throughout the war, but in particular before Vimy. Um, so this is an ongoing process. And uh, I don't want to suggest that disease didn't claim soldiers. It did. Uh, several thousand died from disease, uh, most prominently from the uh, what we call the Spanish flu, but the virus pandemic of 1918 and 1919. 
And yet it would have been far higher without the medical services who really played a key role and an acknowledged role uh, by the high command in keeping the soldiers fighting fit. To be part of the medical corps during the First World War was to make impossible decisions every day. Each Canadian infantry battalion of 1,000 soldiers had one regimental medical officer and 16 stretcher bearers who traveled with the unit. This ratio meant that medical personnel had to constantly make decisions about who to provide care to and how. And it wasn't simply battle wounds that required care from medical officers, nurses, and stretcher bearers. The Canadian Army Medical Corps was responsible for the overall health of Canadian soldiers. This meant battling not only the onslaught of physical wounds during periods of active combat, but also illness that spread through the lines, physical conditions like trench foot, pests in the form of lice and rats, the proliferation of venereal disease, and mental illness like shell shock, or what we would today call PTSD, a condition that medical personnel were continually working to understand as the war evolved. And yes, this is the war that shattered and dismembered soldiers' bodies, but it also scarred their minds. And, and shell shock was, was new uh, to most of the doctors. Uh, and it was a very complex wound to understand. At first, as the name would suggest, they thought it was a result of the shells exploding over soldiers, causing concussions or even brain lesions, so a physical wound. And there was, in fact, some evidence of that. Um, but as they continued to study these patients who were breaking down, they realized that for many of them, it was stress and strain, the prolonged attrition of service in the front lines, um, the dirt and deprivation, the rats and the lice, the unburied corpses, and then usually a traumatic event being buried alive by a shell or seeing a close friend being cut down, um, often uh, broke soldiers mentally. And um, there was an evolution in, in the downward slide of soldiers. Uh, tremors would be seen, um, uh, stammering, um, as I recount in the book, uh, day terrors and nightmares. And then the more severe aspects, including the paralysis of limbs, of mutism, the inability to talk, or soldiers who were driven just stark raving mad. And so shell shock was a really complex wound, and it really revealed itself in 1916 in the, the full industrial war as there was more and more artillery, those massive bombardments. Just one year prior, medical officers diagnosed 642 Canadian soldiers with shell shock requiring a hospital stay. By 1916, the strain of shell shock on the Canadian forces had only become more serious. Working in a hospital that received shell-shocked patients, nursing sister Sophie Horner witnessed terrible suffering, saying, Some of them go right to pieces. Their nerve has gone, and they cry like babies. Back in the trenches, the soldiers witnessed this firsthand. Rifleman and signals operator Victor Wheeler recounted a time when a mortar bomb fell into his trench, exploding and sending every nearby soldier flying. Victor lost consciousness, lying in the mud until he eventually came to and took in the scene around him. When he did, he found his friend Tom, bug-eyed and sitting stiffly in the trench. In Victor's own words, 
Tom had lost his mind. With each new shell explosion sounding nearby, Tom dove to the ground, clawing desperately at the trench maps in an attempt to hide under them and get away from the explosion. Tom initially received care at a dressing station shortly after the explosion. The medical personnel present would not have been able to do much for him there, and it would take considerable and prolonged care to treat a case of PTSD like Tom's. There was an evolution in treatment. Um, Often it was quite benign. It was rest. It was uh, talking therapy. It was, um, you know, an attempt to soothe these, the, the soldiers who had been savaged. But sometimes it could be quite brutal, including electric shock therapy. Um, And here the doctors went through uh, a moral struggle. Uh, Many of them um, believed their role was to simply care for these wounded soldiers. Um, But there was always the pressure, of course, of getting them back into the firing line. And the book itself, I think the title of the book, Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, captures this contradiction um, uh, that is imposed on these medical doctors and nurses. On the one hand, it is service in the care in all of its um, facets to the soldier. On the other hand, it's service um, to the army. And those those weren't always easily squared. And I think shell shock is one of those areas where it's really revealed the, the desire to help these wounded soldiers, but then the pressure to send them back to the firing line often when they were not ready or able to withstand the tremendous pressure at the front. As the war went on, medical treatment of mental illness, disease, and injuries continued to improve. Of the over half a million admissions of the sick and wounded to medical units, only about 21,500 died in care. That's slightly less than 4%. And yet during the course of the war, there was this constant evolution in care, innovation in care, one could say. In terms of surgery, at the start of the war, brain wounds or gut wounds or even a broken femur was basically a death sentence. They just couldn't save these soldiers, largely because almost every wound on the Western Front became infected. The soil, which had been impregnated with animal and human feces over centuries, uh, had microbes, and, and these infections were just shocking to the doctors. They had never encountered this before. It was not the same in the South African War. Uh, and as they were losing patients, uh, who they often saved in surgery, but then died of infection, they had to engage and figure out what they were going to do. And there's this, uh, I recount in the book, an evolution in care in dealing with infection, often leading to cutting away of great swaths of flesh and, and muscle, creating these secondary wounds that took months to heal, but that ultimately saved many lives. New techniques and setting bones and with special splints, the use of blood transfusion, of which Canadians were pioneers, fascinating innovations there. The use of the x-ray machine, really for the first time in the history of warfare, allowed doctors to find uh, all of the slivers and jagged pieces of shells and uh, shattered bullets in the bodies. And The statistics speak for themselves during the course of the war by 1917 and 1918, many of those lethal wounds at the start of the war were routinely being treated and soldiers were surviving. And I think it's one of the fascinating aspects of the medical war. 
Yet soldiers still did die, often of battle wounds that needed to be studied in order to better understand how to treat them. As medical officers and nurses learned from first-hand experience behind the lines, higher-ranking officials in the Canadian Army Medical Corps and allied governments were considering other alternatives for progressing medical knowledge. Namely, the harvesting of deceased soldiers' body parts for study and display, without their explicit consent or knowledge. You uncovered some pretty groundbreaking research on the collection of soldiers' body parts during the First World War for medical study and display. And I wonder if you can give a brief overview of this act of what you call body snatching, the collection of body parts by the Canadian and Allied forces. As a historian, I have all of these research files and stories I want to write. I've been fairly prolific, but there's, there's more. And this was a story that I had encountered years and years ago, uh, and I recount this in the book, the sort of journey that I took to find this, um, evidence that there was to be a medical museum built in Ottawa filled with artifacts and archival material and pathological samples. And it, I always wondered what those pathological samples were, you know, and so I, I, I'm lucky to live in Ottawa, and I spent a lot of time uh, at the National Archives researching for these files. And it, spent, it took years to find them. They were buried, they were mislabeled. It wasn't a conspiracy, it's just, you know, archival research is difficult. Um, but I found them, and they did reveal um, a systemic and systematic program, a British program, of collecting soldiers' body parts. And the Canadians took part in this and willingly took part and were, uh, you know, were supportive of this. Canadian doctors who, when a soldier died in the hospital, would autopsy that slain soldier and then remove his brain if it had been torn apart by shell fragment or bullet, um, uh, lungs that had been burned by mustard gas, broken femurs, uh, other organs, these were collected. Private William Gerald Arthrell of the 25th Battalion was one such soldier whose remains were collected after his death. Standing at six foot two and a half inches, 19-year-old William would have probably been an easier target than many of his shorter comrades. But like many of them, William had not yet been equipped with a steel helmet when on March 25, 1916, he was shot through the head. He fought for his life for 13 hours, despite a shattered skull and exposed brain matter. After he finally passed, William was buried at Bayeul Communal Cemetery, but without his brain. Instead, his brain had been collected as a pathological sample destined for study and display in a proposed medical museum in Canada. William's parents were never told that their son's body was not buried in full at his gravesite in France. And at first I was, I think it'd be fair to say, horrified by it, this idea that Canadian soldiers, fathers, uncles, brothers, the citizen soldiers who enlist for king and country who served overseas in what they saw as a just war to liberate Western Europe, when they were killed, that they were expected to continue to serve on as medical specimens. But of course, as you research, as you dive deeper, you understand, well, this is what doctors had been doing for centuries. Uh, the, the dead 
provides secrets to the living. The evolution of care uh, is aided by these autopsies and understanding how soldiers died. And yet the harvesting of soldiers' body parts without their consent, even though consent is a modern concept, but certainly without the next of kin knowing about it, the mothers and fathers and, and wives and children, and then putting them on display and incredibly sending 799 body parts back to Canada at the end of the war. This is, a, this is just a major revelation. This knowledge would have likely also shocked soldiers serving overseas. When possible, burial was an important practice for those on the front. Soldiers often went to extraordinary lengths to bury their friends, sometimes risking their lives to run into no man's land to retrieve their bodies. And proper burials were not just about respecting societal and religious norms. They were also a comfort to those still living through hell and worried about what would happen to their own bodies if or sometimes a matter of when they died. As I recount in the book, this is also a war of mass trauma and death with 66,000 Canadians killed. And yet one of the interesting parts, if you read soldiers' letters home, they talk about um, great lengths to bury their comrades who were killed. And, and this is a bit surprising too. The funerals behind the lines are constantly going on. Now in the mass of battles, so the Somme and Vimy, there are several thousand soldiers killed, often lying in no man's land. They can't all be collected and having a funeral. And yet it mattered to many of the soldiers to know that if they were killed, that they would be buried and that there would be a grave there. Um, and it mattered to the families. And if you read the letters of soldiers writing back to the grieving and mourning, especially mothers and fathers, they often talk about how their friend, while killed, has a grave. And that really mattered. The bodies buried were not always buried with all of their body parts. I think, and I write in the book of several cases where the next of kin would have been horrified by that, um, certainly would not have understood it and would have um, found it very challenging, I think, to know that their son or uncle or father not only was killed for king and country, um, but would serve on with his harvested organ um, as a medical spe teaching specimen. And none of this information was communicated, however, to, to the next of kin. Again, one might leap and think of conspiracy and mad scientists and Frankenstein-like horrors. That's not the case. And yet, I struggle to reckon with it in the book, especially in the post-war period, when the body parts come back to Canada and they're going to be in this museum. And then the Department of National Defense or what will become DD realizes they have a problem. And they have a problem because Canada is going through a period of ennobling the fallen. This is the period where we build thousands of memorials across this country. The stone memorials, the cenotaphs for the empty graves, to, to mark the soldiers left overseas, stained glass windows in churches, memorial plaques, commemorative histories, uh, new, you know, think of Memorial University in Newfoundland. Uh, think of um, all the naming of sites uh, after fallen soldiers. It's a great period of commemoration. And that's the period where these harvested body parts 
simply do not align with the commemorative impulse of Canadians. And so, the 799 collected body parts of fallen soldiers were never put on display in Canada. Instead, the country turned to memorializing the incredible scale of sacrifice as soldiers, medical officers, and nurses returned to a country changed in their absence. About half of all Canadian doctors served overseas. And while several dozen were killed, as well as nearly 60 nurses and hundreds of stretcher bearers killed, most survived the war. When they returned home, many took up work in their own communities, bringing with them the lessons they had learned on the Western Front. We had 172,000 Canadians wounded, about half of them very badly. Um, they needed prosthetic limbs. They needed to go through physiotherapy. That's a huge new state medical apparatus, which is created in Canada um, to care for our veterans. Um, innovations like blood transfusions are being used uh, throughout Canadian hospitals in the 1920s. The use of the x-ray, uh, so crucial on the Western Front, becomes an important tool for treating uh, all Canadians. One of the stories I talk about, and I, uh, which is really fascinating in the book, for me at least, is um, the tens of thousands of Canadians who tried to enlist but couldn't. They were too malnourished. They had, um, they had grown up in inner cities and they simply were too small and stunted to soldier on. And as some listeners will remember, at the start of the war, the physical requirements were quite high. You had to be five foot six or seven to enlist and 150 pounds or so, and they could choose the best. And those requirements continually dropped throughout the war. Uh, sometimes to you know, you could be five foot two or in some of the Bantam battalions, even under five feet. But these were soldiers, we think about 100,000, who, who simply couldn't even make those requirements. And that was a great controversy when that was revealed. And so after the war, there's a new push for public health, which also is a result of the success of the vaccination program. And, and I think this is fascinating. And I talk about maternal care and the care of new babies. All of these lessons, facial reconstructions leading to plastic surgery, advances in psychiatry from shell shock, they all emerge from this Armageddon of destruction on the Western Front. And I think it's just undeniable. We simply have to acknowledge that this horrific, grinding war, ironically, led to tremendous advances in health and care and ultimately prolonging Canadians' lives in the 20s and 30s and 40s and leading into the Second World War. And yet, as one doctor said, at what a cost. Indeed, at what a cost. 66,000 Canadians killed, 172,000 wounded. But I think I am on very solid ground in saying there would have been far more dead soldiers slain in battle, dying of their wounds or infection if it had not been for the men and women of the Canadian Army Medical Corps. Many thanks to Tim Cook for speaking to me about medical care in the First World War. All of the soldier stories shared in this episode come from his recently published book, Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, which you can find in major and local bookstores now. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Louisa Simmons. 
Special thanks to Alex Fitzgerald Black, Executive Director of the Juno Beach Center Association. Alex started this podcast from scratch over three years ago, and you'll still hear from him from time to time. Thanks also to our 2022 intern, Keegan Gingrich, who worked on the podcast over the past five months. I'm so excited to be carrying on as Juno Beach and Beyond's new producer. You can find more episodes at junobeach.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on all social media with the handle Juno Beach Center. The Juno Beach Center is Canada's second World War Museum and Cultural Center, located in Normandy, France.